Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. And then the group was like, hey, what, you know, let's test the radioactivity of, of these reclaimed soils. The radioactivity was gone, and so they started growing rice. I went out and planted rice one day. I've never, never done anything like that. I, you know, I grew up spending a lot of time on a farm. We had a giant cedar that, you know, we'd went, our drills would put down the seed. Well, here they grow the, these rice seedlings in the hoop houses. They bring them out, and we we put the plugs in. And so there I was, kind of, you know, um, calf deep in the mud. Uh, new experience. I, I, I'm not great with bare feet, right? And I'm out there like I don't love this. Do you have any shoes? Uh, but we were out there planting rice with this whole group. There were probably 30 or 40 volunteers, and we were out there just plugging this this rice in, into the into the soil. Just this experience, I'm like, I never thought that I would be planting rice by hand. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Today's guest is Dr. Colin Campbell, who has been a research scientist at METER for 21 years, following his PhD at Texas A&M University in Soil Physics. He is currently serving as Vice President of Meter Environment and is also Adjunct Faculty with the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences at Washington State University, where he co-teaches environmental biophysics, a class he took over from his father Galen nearly 20 years ago. Dr. Campbell's early research focused on field-scale measurements of CO2 and water vapor flux, but has shifted toward moisture and heat flow instrumentation for the soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. And today he's here to talk with us about his collaboration with environmental scientists working in Fukushima, Japan. So welcome, Colin. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, so I would assume that that the majority, if not all of our audience, are familiar with the 2011 Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster triggered by, you know, huge earthquakes, tsunami. Um, but I'm wondering how how did you get into, how did you get involved in in the situation? And can you just tell us a little bit about the, the backstory of, of how that came to be? Yeah, there's there's a ton of backstory, and so we, we can go through it. Maybe I'll start and then just keep backing up from the the original. So, I was friends with uh, Professor Masaru Mizuguchi at the University of Tokyo, and I've spent a lot of time in Japan. And when the disaster happened, it was you know I think like many most looking at it on the news, looking at these incredible pictures of of. Uh, walls of water moving through these beautiful uh, Japanese communities. And of course, it wasn't, didn't really connect, but we saw this problem with the, the nuclear reactor when the, the uh, seawater inundated the, the engine room, you know, the support engine room, the diesel generators, which were supposed to be kind of the secondary cooling mechanism of the reactors. And it's, as I understand it, you know, at that point we had meltdown. We had we know that that uh, there was a, a large plume of, of radioactive cesium that was released into the atmosphere, and so these are the things we saw in the news. And like many news stories, we saw that and were concerned about it. But the but there wasn't, you know, like so many things. Immediately, I didn't think, hey, what can I do about this? Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is this is real challenge. I wish there was something I could do about it, but like so many news stories, they pass on, you kind of forget about them. 
and and really this this nuclear disaster actually evolved over time, right? It wasn't that same moment that the tsunami came in. Right. It was days later where they ended up not being able to to cool the the reactor, and we had a, a breach, and and then we had this this plume of radioactive cesium. Environmentally speaking, the process was pretty straightforward. We had this plume, went up into the upper atmosphere. It kind of slowly moved over with the prevailing wind. And it was March March 11th, right? And, mm-hmm. and in mid-March and in Japan, in this particular location, the Fukushima prefecture, uh, that meant snow. And mm-hmm. so it, it snowed on this area. And specifically, the thing that, that I that we've come to really know as as Fukushima, quote unquote, is not actually Fukushima. Fukushima is a city and it's a prefecture. It's a it's an area, and within that, there's a little little is maybe the wrong word for it, but a beautiful mountainous region that's kind of across a a divide from the Fukushima, the city, which is Itate Village, and it's not really a village. I expected when I went there to see a village. It's not really a village. It's just a community of, of spread out homes in this beautiful mountainous region of Japan. And that cloud essentially went over to this region, couldn't make it over the, the mountains that are kind of blocking mm-hmm. Fukushima and snowed right there on, on Itate village. I didn't know any about, anything about this. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly what I knew about it was that Disaster happened. We did have this this reactor breach, and there was a problem. But the problems were all around. Um, in fact, most of the things that we connect with were were things that I visited. You know, in one trip, we got to go to the area of Sendai, and we saw where the this the tsunami had come in, and it, and it wiped out all these rice fields, wiped out this beautiful little school. You know, killing many many of these school children, just sad, sad stories. So the impact there was really recognizable, right? The, the, the rice fields have been destroyed. The, how are we going to recover from this? We were helping in the recovery by deploying some of our conductivity temperature depth sensors there to, to look at, hey, how is the water? Are we getting from salt water, which isn't going to grow anything, mm-hmm. back to a fresh water? So it in this location, it was easy to see the damage. The damage was clear. It came in, it destroyed all this land. We have all this big machinery trying to, to put it back the way it was. You know, the school was there. We got to visit the, the school and just really, you know, feel the suffering of this people. On the other, you know, not far away was Itate Village. And there was no tsunami in Itate Village. It's up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was no kind of panic there. Nothing happened there that was fast. The, this cloud came over in perfect silence, right? And, and snowed down there in Tate. And little did we know that this, this other environmental disaster, this, this in some ways further reaching environmental disaster was occurring right there. And, and so really the first thing I knew about it was Dr. Mizuguchi, we call him Mizo. Uh, he's a wonderful man, and and if you go on Meter's website, there there you, you know you can see videos of Mizo, and he wrote me and he said, Colin, where there are a lot of us who are really concerned about this this Itate village area, it wasn't where the tsunami went, but the agricultural impacts and the personal impacts of this particular incident 
we're far more reaching and, and, and fewer people are involved. Is it possible that you could figure out how to plug a Geiger counter into an EM50? So EM50s were our data logger at the time. And, and he wondered if we could somehow get a voltage output for, from one of these devices and read it on our data logger so we could create a history of what was going on there and trying to understand the impacts of the, of the radiation fallout and the snow that came and see what we could do over time. And we said, yeah, of course, we, let's see what we can do. And it was kind of cool at the time. In Japan, they have a kind of entre entrepreneurial culture. So what we actually went over there, it was several months after the disaster, but we went over there for a visit and we got to sit down with some of these groups that, hey, I'm a, you know, I do biological engineering most of the time in this little startup, but we really want to help our countrymen here in, in the Itate area in, in Fukushima. And what we want to do is put together a little Geiger counter that will help, you know, a cheap, inexpensive uh, device that we can just deploy there and just get an idea of, hey, what's the radiation level? How is it changing over time? What is the impact? And so that's really how we got introduced to, to, to Mizo and, and his group of friends. And it's truly a group of friends, right? It's not a there was nothing dictated that said, hey, you need to go and help these people. But a group of people said, this has happened and we feel morally responsible to help, to try to change the world in whatever way we can. And that's kind of how we got introduced was we sat down there. Remember at his desk at the University of Tokyo, we had this, this long table. We sat around. We said, hey, what are some of the things that we could do, mm -hmm. whatever, however small, to try to try to change the impact of this, right. this disaster. Right. How extensive was the impact amongst um, Itate Village and the agricultural surroundings there? And, and what exactly was going on? You talked about the this cloud of radioactive cesium. Um, you've, you talked about the snowfall then that that then brought the cesium down into their fields. Um, from from that point on, what what happens to to their their you know to their fields yeah. to their rice to their livelihoods yeah it's it's a great question and, and one that I didn't know <laughs> right our biggest experience really with any of this is Chernobyl mm -hmm. which kind of evolved in a very different way uh, the the community in Japan is extremely strong as as you know and so you know after this happened there really wasn't a, a complete understanding of of what the impacts were but but everybody kind of knew one thing that the people in Itate village needed to leave. Mm -hmm. And so the people were, were as quickly as possible, and I don't know what time scale that was in, taken out of their homes in, in Itate, and they moved essentially over into, into Fukushima, into the city of Fukushima. And, you know, from, from when we would travel around there, it was one of these really eerie ghost towns initially when we went in there, that there was just there were people and then there weren't people mm -hmm. and so houses it, it you know nothing happened like this great tsunami that pushed houses over and destroyed things it was pristine in the village but what essentially happened was you know through the crack cracks in the asphalt mm -hmm. uh were growing weeds right and 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 the the stores that you would recognize as a functioning store somewhere else in in japan it was there but the doors were closed and no one was in the parking lot um and so essentially, people were just, you know, the government came through and said, hey, you must leave. And people left. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, you know, the timeline's not clear to me, but, but when they left, 
they went over into into kind of some refugee centers. And, and it, after a while, the government was able to house a lot of the people of, of Itate in in kind of manufactured small small manufactured trailers or homes with small community centers. But they were they were situated in in parking lots mm. that that they put people where they could. And even and I visited one of these these relocation areas even four four or five years after this, and the people are still living there wow. and trying to wait to see what happens. At the same time, the government kind of immediately responded to try to deal with the radiation, and also there are a lot of people from around the world that kind of mobilized and came in, and the radiation was such that people could go into the area for for a day, mm -hmm. right? And they they wore their radiation tags to you know see how much dosing they had over a day, but they they could go in there. And essentially, what people were doing was going into the homes, going into the to the parking areas around the homes, and trying to clean those things to try to remove to wash them all down and, and remove the radiation. And and so that was initially what happened was that people all simply left the area, just grab you know the stuff you need and go out. And the, the, there was a, a large response from the government and, and kind of concerned citizens from around the world who came in to try to clean. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that goes into my next question about what was the government doing, um, both local and, and national government, to, to not only, I mean, clean up the, the city itself or the village itself, but, but then that, that, that next step, what were they doing to help, help clean up or remediate the, the, right. the uh, that radioactive, um, you know, fallout there in the soils itself. Yes. So when you see the village and you think about this, the radioactivity raining down on the village, the thing that's hard to conceptualize is how widespread the, the radioactivity is, because this area isn't just kind of a wide, you know, a wide open town. There are these gorgeous mountain forests, just thick with vegetation. I mean, I've walked kind of up to them and and they're not forests that I'm used to. Here in the Pacific Northwest, I go out in the forest and you can kind of walk among the trees and really enjoy yourself. You can kind of make your own path. In the forests of, of this Itate village area in the Fukushima prefecture, that at least my impression is that when I walked up to there, it wasn't gonna be kind of a really easy way to get into to the forest. They were also very steep and 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 rugged. And so cleaning up this area was a tall task. So what, what happened was essentially, first of all, we need to clean up the, the houses and, and the surroundings within, you know, let's say 50 meters around the house. And then the thought was we need to clean up the farmland. And that's really where I started to get involved in this uh, more deeply is that the people we worked with, specifically Dr. Mizuguchi and others, we're looking at this challenge of how do we remediate the farmland from an ecological point of view. And when you think about it, the, it and we've talked about this before in other, in other videos that Meter has made, but the upper 10 centimeters of soil is a critical zone where we have organic matter, we have, you know, we have microbes, we have all these things working in concert to create this high fertility that grows rice or, or whatever, particularly in this area, the rice. And, and the plan with, by the government, and I understand why they wanted to do this, because we, we needed to clean up a very difficult situation. Their plan was to essentially move, remove the top 10 centimeters of, of soil. Mm 
They bagged them up. They put them in the center of Itate. Now, there is a little village area, and they were in the, the center. But it's far, again, far more spread out than you kind of, when I say village, this is, doesn't look like kind of what pops into the mind for a village. And, and so this, they removed the soil, and then they, they went to a mountain, and they were taking down this mountain, crushing the granite that was in this mountain forming it into kind of sand, a little about sand-sized particles. And then they'd lay that back down. So you can imagine just scraping the surface of the soil, kind of bagging that all up. These bags, I've seen them here in the Northwest. They're, they're things that bag wheat, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, or, 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 or beans or, mm -hmm. or lentils or something. That's what they put them in. These were the soil bags. And they're not made to last forever, right? They're just canvas bags. But that's what they had. And they, they now if you go there, there are huge piles of these canvas bags covered with now tarp, oh. tarping. And, and the hope is that, you know, they stay there. But the challenge is these aren't going to last forever. So that was their plan. And Miso looked at that and said, look, from an ecological point of view, if you move, remove all this topsoil, you essentially kill the soil. Not, mm -hmm. Let's not speak too strongly about that, but it's it. There's, you're taking away much of what makes a soil a soil. Mm -hmm. And so he devised a plan that, that because there were rice fields and because of the soil that was there, it's pretty heavy clay, that clay has binding sites for cesium. It, it's kind of a cool confluence of science and, and chemistry, that it, or physics and chemistry, where we, can, we have these clay particles, they're charged on the surface, and that cesium will bind there. Mm -hmm. And he said, what if we went ahead the, on these these rice fields that get mixed that get mixed anyway and that, that we can flood anyway, what if we went ahead and mixed things these things up and made just like this milkshake of soil? And what if we took all that water off into a pit? What would change about the radioactivity of the soil? And so he did a few experiments and and even did this on a few fields. And the amazing thing was that you could actually we mixed it up, all the sand and the silt would kind of sink to the bottom, the clay would remain in suspension, and then you could just poke a little hole in the dike of this rice field and let all the water run out into a pit. And if you covered that pit, the, the radiation that, that is emitted by the season, the gamma radiation, can't go very far in soil. So it would be perfectly safe for, for humans to be there. if You cover that up, and then they found that the radiation was virtually gone from the field. Now, they did this on a few fields. It's harder work. And in the end, the government said, hey, thank you so much for doing this, but we want to get this taken care of. And there are a lot of fields there. And they didn't use this technique. But it was a cool way. All the fields that that, that were done like that, uh, one of the farmers uh, that we worked with there, we we remediated, remediated his field that, that way. I was there that day when we did it. Such a wonderful experience. So many volunteers coming down from Tokyo and as surrounding, just taking their weekend and working there. And we we completely removed the radiation from this field. We had all this instrumentation out to measure it and, and, and do the things that I love to do. And then after that, we had this beautiful field that was devoid of radiation that he went and planted all these beautiful irises mm -hmm. in. So when oh, I wow. came back <laughs> two years later, there was just this huge field of irises. And just, you know, his... Um, you know, Akubo-san, as I recall, was the name of the farmer, and and he just said, you know, I'm old, 
And I just want to turn this area into a thank you site to those people who came and served. And he put all the names of the people who wow. came up on a sign and planted trees, uh, beautiful trees uh, for those people individually there in a, a little orchard. So that was some of the stuff we did, you know, and, and some of the early work that we did out there. So with with the government's efforts and and saying, you know, thanks, but no thanks with this project, yeah. was it just a matter of it not being cost effective in their in their mind to time extends yeah. of that, that kind of thing? You know, that's a great question. It, it, it was time intensive cost effect. I think it could have been done effectively. But one of the challenges we have as soil scientists is that is that that we're not necessarily <laughs> Can I say this about us? We're not necessarily mainstream, you know, like I know my kids go to school. They're like, hey, uh, you know, what does your dad do? Well, he's a soil scientist. Right. And they're like, oh, well, um, yeah, the, let's move on. Right. So I, I, there may have been a component of like, hey, we've got this. You know, I know you guys want to do the ecological thing. We, we kind of know what we are doing. And also you know, it's it's maybe easier to mobilize and mobilize it was. There were hundreds, thousands of workers driving trucks, dumping this, you know, this crushed granite on fields and, and rolling it on. It just seemed like they came up with the plan and they wanted to execute the plan. And I and I understand that at some level. But ecologically speaking, we came back and I've said that a few times. And, and, and the reason I'm talking about that is that we went out there and, and I looked at these fields that that. And there were some decontaminated fields and some that hadn't been decontaminated sitting right by each other. And of course, I mentioned weeds and that's what the fields were growing, mm -hmm. right? Because everybody had left. And so no one was farming the fields during this time. And the decontaminated field just looked like a barren field. I just saw this crushed granite, you know, kind of a, you know, a light brown color laying mm -hmm. out there. And I saw most of the soil and right next to it, there were just these fields of weeds growing. Mm -hmm. And the weeds were kind of speaking for mm -hmm. for the ecology saying hey this isn't really our ideal situation you know maybe we'll come back to that one day but but this new soil is not really mm -hmm. very easy to grow i was going to say yeah is is crushed granite i mean how do they come up with with that idea of is it a viable replacement for for the soil that's there or at least for for the that medium yeah so i would say say eventually maybe that not i mean imagine so is you know when you take your first soil science class you talk about soil forming factors mm -hmm. right here are the five soil forming factors and essentially the government said hey we're going to participate in soil forming we're going to go to this hill that has granite and we're going to crush it in, into small little bits and then we're going to you know lay it out mm -hmm. and so soil i mean it has a portion of the soil right the small particles you know, that defines soil and yet it has no cation exchange capacity. It has no ability to, to uh, even if it were extremely small, the ability of clay to bind cesium, you know, this crushed granite did not have that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the mineralogy of it, which I don't know, I, you know, I never test, I'm not exactly sure, you know, was this quartz, you know, what, you know, what made up this granite? Um, and yet as a soil scientist, you would say, well, this is kind of a pre-soil. Mm -hmm. This is a, you know, one, a soil that, that's just brand new and, and beginning to form. Forms, uh, soil forms over thousands of years, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this is not going to be a, a viable solution without other inputs like fertilizer and, and things uh, to do that. And 
One of the other questions we had about the soil and the process was, hey, this is great to have kind of a, a, um, a soil put down, but what other properties does it have? So we used our Saturo, the, the, the dual head infiltrometer, and went that out there and measured it. One of our campaigns over there was just to say, hey, what is the impact of this? And on that trip, we went to Akubo's son's farm and they were just remediating the last field, the last rice field. And there on the rice field was a roller, like a like a something you use on a road, you know, a, a big, big industrial instrument. You know, the guy's driving a roller up and down on the soil hmm. that they've just laid there. And there's one thing I know about soil is that you don't want to drive a roller sure. on it, right? Yeah. The, the, you just can pack right. the heck out of it. And... And so we went off with the Saturo and we measured, you know, in this field that they'd remediated, actually multiple fields. And the data came back. It was somewhere between, you know, kind of a, an extremely compact soil and a concrete mm. in terms of its it, 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 our ability to infiltrate water in there. Mm. And I'm not saying this won't change. And I'm not saying that, that plants can't be grown in this. It just creates a challenge. And and I understand why it was done, but mm -hmm. but it is kind of an interesting thing to think about is, as we deal with with disasters and, and presumably we'll continue to have this as, as a society, as, mm -hmm. as humans living on Earth, that that considering that the, the ecological, the biological consequences of making certain choices it should be done rather deeply. And I'm, I know people thought about this, but but it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, in speaking of, of kind of the ecological impacts, were, were there other um, environmental impacts that, that they were concerned about? I mean, you, you talked about these these dense forests that are around in the right. surrounding areas, um, concerns with, you know, runoff or leaching or, or maybe other other things like that. But then at the same time, you have these weeds that are growing, you know, yep. the old Jurassic Park adage that life finds a way <laughs> yeah. type of thing. Right. Um, can you yeah speak to, to some of those concerns? Yeah, so so I guess we had a hierarchy of thinking as as we approached the this remediation. And again, I want to reiterate, I played a very small role in this. You know, we tried to to support as much as we could. We visited regularly. We were at the site, but there are some amazing individuals that that were really putting a lot of energy into this. And 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 and, and so many that I can't name by name, but there are these individuals who, who made it their their weekend work every weekend to go up and and, and donate time um, to to this effort, and and so initially we're thinking about rice fields and and with another farmer we worked with Maneo's son just this wonderful uh, gentleman and his wife that we got to work with. Uh, first we focused on the fields right and and this this boundary around the house. And then eventually we started thinking, okay, what's, you know, what are we going to do about the mountains, the runoff and things like that? So, but, but certainly even early on, we had samplers out in the stream, didn't put them there. Somebody did, mm -hmm. you know, this ISCO samplers were out there sampling the stream water, seeing what was coming down and runoff because yeah, big problem. If you've got contamination in the mountains, mm -hmm. you know, that's going to move or it can potentially move. Cool thing about having a lot of clay out there is that it's going to bind that and hopefully keep it in place. But if we have a lot of runoff where we have, you know, in, in, in a world of climate change where we get these more intense storms coming through, we can then drive that runoff and we see, you know, some bulk movement of soil. And if we get that, especially where we get clay in suspension, that can move and it can move a long ways. So 
thinking about retention, how do we retain this, you know, and then clean up whatever kind of retention ponds are there and, and, and make sure that that's done was, was in the consciousness of the, of the group. And you mentioned in passing a few times now, the, these volunteers that would come down and help out. I was wondering if you had any, any stories of, of those and, yeah. you know, what they were doing specifically to, to help out with this effort. So, you know, one of the things about being able to visit there every year is that I wasn't there every weekend, but I could see the progress. So one of the things that they thought about when we, you know, kind of in conjunction with this challenge of the soil and it not really as a result, but we knew that the soil wasn't going to be super productive because it was so dang hard, right? Mm -hmm. it, the water didn't infiltrate very well. It didn't have a lot of fertility. So they set up some greenhouses so Maneo Sun could go out and grow some crops and then, you know, that wouldn't be in, uh, in contaminated soil. And, and then hopefully the, the people of Japan would want to support these, these farmers who are coming back to their land by purchasing their, the, the, uh, the crops grown. So first time it came back, there are these beautiful uh, hoop houses set up to, to grow. And a lot of the, the electrical engineers, the, the gadget guys had been setting up little control systems. So Maneo-san could set it up and they'd irrigate, you know, based on the soil moisture in the, the root zone and he could grow crops and harvest them and sell them, which was a, this is a great, you know, a great idea. And, and it even worked. And then the group was like, Hey, what, you know, let's test the radioactivity of, of these reclaimed soils. Mm -hmm. The radioactivity was gone. And so they started growing rice. I went out and planted rice one day. I've never, never done anything mm -hmm. like that. I, you know, I grew up spending a lot of time on a farm. We had a giant cedar that, you know, we'd went, <laughs> our drills would put down the seed. Well, here they grow the, these rice seedlings in the hoop houses and they bring them out and we'd, we'd put the plugs in. And so there I was kind of, you know, um, calf deep in the mud, uh, new experience. Yeah. I, I, I'm not great with bare feet, right? And I'm out there <laughs> like, I don't love this, do you have any shoes? Uh, but we were out there planting rice with this whole group. There were probably 30 or 40 volunteers. And, and these volunteers were, were, were PhD students and, and professors at the university and, you know, bank managers and people who just were, who'd heard that were friends and, and with friends and came out and they were all down there. And we were out there just plugging this, this rice in, into the, into the soil, just this experience. I'm like, I never thought that I would be planting rice by hand. It just, it's not, and I even worked on rice as a PhD student. <laughs> but but again, here in the United States, we don't plant mm -hmm. rice that way. Mm -hmm. After we finished the planting the, the rice, I didn't know this, but, but you kind of have a planting celebration. And we and there was no facility to support us there. So we rolled out this giant tarp. And somebody brought in their soap. I didn't imagine I'd love them, but bento boxes. Now I love them. Everybody <laughs> had a lunch, right? And they passed uh -huh. out you know, some rice balls and bento boxes. And we all sat down cross-legged on the tarp. And, and I think, I don't remember exactly. I think it was Maneo's son, mm -hmm. his grandfather, I can't remember. I think over a hundred years old, wow. um, came very frail, older gentleman. And he sang the harvest song or the, or the planting, sorry, mm -hmm. the planting song mm -hmm. to the group, this long song about, you know, the, the meaning of, of planting and the meaning of being able to harvest in this situation. And it was amazing. And, mm -hmm. and many people had tears in their eyes just 
because it was a rebirth there, mm -hmm. right? There were mm -hmm. people who came out and it meant enough to get Muneo's son and his family back on the land that they, they did this. Mm -hmm. And the next time I came there in the same spot, just a little off the side was a brand new house. They built Maneo's son. They they tore down this old house there. They built a new house and they created in the house a headquarters. In addition, so Maneo's son's family lived in the house and also a little area for the the students that were coming and experimenting there from the University of Tokyo, University of Itsunomiya, and other places. And also the just the volunteers, they would come out, plan their work there, this beautiful wood house. I can re still remember the smell. It was so, I mean, it was just fresh and new. Got to go in there, we planned our work, and then we were out there mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. doing doing things. Mm -hmm. So each time I came back, just little steps, we went to a restaurant that had opened up and was completely serving food from Itate village from the villagers from the greenhouses and from this decontaminated mm -hmm. field. So cool, cool experiences. That's awesome. That. That's great. Um, I know you've mentioned this, and maybe for for our purposes with cutting, um, you have you have talked about some of your interactions with with some of the farmers that you have dealt with. I, I was wondering if you had any other any other um, you know stories or interactions with with people from the village. Was everyone in the village uh, connected to the farmers in some way, or or did they have their own separate you know specialties that then they they you know worked on? Did you interact with any of the the other uh, people from the, the from the village there? I think one of the hardest parts of, of going to a village like Itate was that first of all the the population of Itate was generally older. In fact, mm -hmm. at the time, and I don't know what the current statistic is. The mean age of a, a Japanese farmer is 69. Wow. A lot of the young people have just moved off the farms. And a lot of the people that were displaced during this disaster were elderly people. In, in fact, mostly not young. There, there were school, there's a school there and, and there were some young people, but the by and large elderly people. Um, and, and, and so the language barrier was really challenging. And so even talking to Maneo-san and trying to, to kind of I wanted to get a feeling for the impact of, of the challenge in his life. It, for me, it just it helped me connect with with what had happened mm -hmm. and and really understand on a very personal level what the meaning was. Because as we are far away from it, it's in the news and things. The personal nature of this kind of disaster isn't necessarily something we understand, and and so I did get a little bit of that. But it wasn't until actually this year, early this year, we had a large uh, Zoom conference where we all got together and talked about Fukushima and some of the research that we'd, we'd done. And we had in-time interpretation there. So mm -hmm. it's fun in Japan. Sometimes we can get interpretation that just essentially runs real time. Mm -hmm. And some of the, and, and Muneo-san got up and he, he, he talked in this conference. And finally, I kind of heard him speak about the challenge, about the disaster, about his family, and about what it meant to be able to come back. And it was it was incredible. It was it was not something, you know, through Mizo or, or one of our colleagues here, Sean Weldon, went with me over to do some work there. He speaks Japanese, but it's really, you know, he can translate some for mm -hmm. me, but he's listening and connecting. And mm -hmm. for me, I'm often kind of, okay, so what did they say, <laughs> right? But, but I finally got that opportunity to hear about the, the challenges of, of son and his family and, and what it meant to one day just lose everything. I mean, this was, this is something that had, 
had been in his family, right? It had been for, yeah. for years and years. And, and one day suddenly they were living in a, in a square box, mm -hmm. you know, in a parking lot in Fukushima. And, and the impact of, of, of some of the things that happen in the world, I mean, I think it's important that we think about scale, right? It, it, seeing it on the news is not like it happens to people there. Mm -hmm. um, you gave a, a, a really good overview of, of the project then that, that um, you know, Miso and that you were helping out with. Can you go into a bit more detail about, about you know, what exactly were you measuring? How did that, that process flow? Um, those other things that you're trying to do in, in solving the, the problems there in, yeah. in the village. So the, originally we weren't really sure what we should be doing, right? I, the Miso went out to test ideas even before I ever got there of, of does cesium really bind to the clay particles? And if we kind of look at where cesium is in the soil profile, would we see what we expect to see that the cesium is up on the surface? So that was the initial part of this to try to understand where's the cesium and how to, how to, to uh, capture it essentially mm -hmm. to remediate this area. But at the same time, a lot of what we were doing was, was deploying instrumentation. So just weather instrumentation, trying to understand what, what the, what's happening with the weather there, where are we seeing, we, you know, humidity, what's the temperature, what's the solar radiation, uh, what's the wind speed and all these kind of things. And then try to understand, you put hammers out to try to understand what is going to happen with, with the, the flora and fauna around, especially they had the wild boars. <laughs> and you wouldn't really think about wild boars and monkeys in the conversation, mm -hmm. but they're there. Mm -hmm. And so the wild boars would come out in the fields because nobody was there to really stop them and they dig up the fields and so this this idea of trying to keep the cesium in a spot because of clay well, everything might have been great except the wild boars are coming out and, and and kind of mixing up the soil and digging in it and 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 trying to find roots and and, and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff so mm -hmm. so initially a lot of our efforts was really environmental soil moisture that kind of stuff and it it moved to to trying to understand the impacts of of some of the, the government work on the soil. So like I talked about, I mentioned the, the infiltration, that was one of our, our big things, try to understand that, the, the fertility of the soil, and then turning towards some of these other opportunities like these greenhouses um, that were able to grow plants in, in essentially suspended media or reclaimed media, mm -hmm. uh, the soil. And, and it, you know, when you think of the scope of this effort, sometimes you think, well, you know, that's not a ton of stuff, right? What, what, what are you guys doing? You know, this was all focused on really getting the villagers to return, which they did, mm -hmm. uh, which was an amazing time. You know, early on when we were going there, we'd spend time there and, and it was eerie. You'd see one government van pass every couple hours and, and, and the rest was quiet. Mm -hmm. And then as, as we went on, more vans, more vans, then the workers, and then lots of people and then regular people came back, right? And, and so this whole process that, that we're, they're going through is trying to think of and come up with ideas of how to, to help these villagers. And, and one of the great things that Mizo loves is Mizo loves sake, okay? Mm -hmm. And so he knew that, that this rice here in the Itate area was well known for sake. Mm. And it was also a wonderful beef growing zone. This, People loved Itate beef. And so one of the projects, like it doesn't have to do with, with necessarily instrumentation directly, right? Except for the, 
fact that we can help out with kind of understanding the agriculture. But his goal was to let's make sake from the rice mm -hmm. and let's sell this this itate rice sake to the people that shows it's not radioactive. It's 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 wonderful humans, but it's made with this beautiful itate rice that's been known for generations, as I understand it, as being this great sake, mm -hmm. right? And 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 also let's return this itate beef. You know, I I've heard of Kobe beef, mm -hmm. right? right I yeah. Here in the United States, I don't think we hear that, but but Mizo assured me he's like he's like, do you know Kobe beef? Yes, I, I know Kobe beef. This was just as good, right? And so we need to return the beef, the tate beef there because this was how they they made their living, you know, on being able to sell these things for, I mean, for, for a really good price. And that was kind of, that was the goal. And it was fun for me. So, so they even established inside an old hospital, like a, a location for all these volunteers to go, right? If you have a lot of volunteers coming up, where are they going to go? Where are they going to sleep? What are they going to do? to try to make this these weekends meaningful mm -hmm. they converted this old hospital into a a hostel and so after the day was done we went over to the hostel and all these volunteers all, i was talking to probably a 75 80 year old professor from from uh, the university of tokyo she taught like japanese um literature at the university but just had heard about the effort was coming up mm -hmm. we got to talk for a long time she spoke wonderful english and she was telling me about this effort they all go into the kitchen i went into the kitchen we all prepared meals there together and came out and ate uh these wonderful traditional japanese meals together and talked about tomorrow what are we going to go do how are we going to make our time really meaningful things. Okay, you're going to the greenhouses. You're going over to do the rice planting. You're going to do the testing, us, mm -hmm. on the soil to see the infiltration. You're going over to, to talk to the growers about what, what they can grow and how we're going to turn that into, into a commodity we can sell. Mm -hmm. And so they were making all these plans and, and you know, we were just a part of it. We were welcomed in there. They're like, oh, we're so happy you did all these things. We're like, we didn't do much, but we're happy to be here today um, helping out. Right. Um, were there any other, um, you know, in, I guess in particular, any, any other specific challenges or roadblocks that you that that you faced there? I mean, aside from, you know, boars digging up no. the fields. Well, it was really I mean, first of all, it's just getting out there. Right. For, for the, the government to say hey, it's safe to actually go in there. And so you had to wear a radiation tag. You, you had to you know, you couldn't stay overnight in the area initially. Um, and, and simply, I mean, really, I mean, my biggest roadblock there was, was the enormity of the task. Mm -hmm. When you walk in there, you're like, I, I don't know what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. This is, this is so big. Um, how do you eat an elephant, do, right? <laughs> right. How, how do we start? And, and luckily people on the project were, you know, they were forward thinking, they were visionary people who saw, you know, no matter what we do, if we do something and keep trying it, it's going to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's essentially how the, how they approached it, and and so our roadblocks were were mainly just trying, you know, a lot of you know when we kind of proved this experimentally, this this good method of reclaiming soils actually worked. Big roadblock was essentially no one wanted to listen, and mm -hmm. and maybe on this particular, I mean, on this we you know we did some, but but not a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but for future times, these things happen. I don't know what exactly is going to be the next disaster. I hope this never happens. This specific thing never happens again. But 
we don't know, but we, I hope the knowledge we brought along here and the things, the techniques we developed could be used other places, right? Um, you know, other, other roadblocks are just trying to really understand how, you know, this is an agriculture community. We need to get the agriculture out again, but there's a not surprising effect with the, the people who are by, which is we don't want your radioactive stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and that's still today, right? The, you know, if you're eating rice and their potential that the rice has picked up some of the cesium, do you really want it? Mm -hmm. Now, we, we've done the work, right? Miso, the group did the work. They've shown that the, that the, the cesium is gone and, and that it's not taken in the plants and it's, it's safe for human consumption. But that was certainly one of the big roadblocks is initially, you know, people pay with their, you know, or vote with their wallets. And mm -hmm. essentially the vote was no, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to have this produce. Now, my understanding is that that's improved that, that they've worked and, and, and done, done enough to help the public say, see, Hey, this is safe for consumption. And you're benefiting these people who so desperately need your support mm -hmm. in this time of need. Yeah. And, and I understand it's better. Um, before we talk about the future, um, what were some of the findings aside from in, in general that the cesium is gone, that yeah. the rice is safe for human consumption? Were there any other findings that, that were of interest to, to this project? Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, <laughs> I think we learned a, a lot about, you know, when we have a disaster, when we need to do some remediation, some of the right ways. And I don't say wrong ways, but more challenging ways mm -hmm. um, to to do this. I think a lot of, or, you know, to, to, to change, to try to remediate a, a difficult situation. I think a lot of the, the learning we had was really connected between the sociology and the, and the, the environment. And, and I've gone to conferences here and a lot of times, it's not what I'm used to, but a lot of the discussion is here, here's the sociology of it all. Here's what happens to a, a displaced people who, who for all of their lives lived in one place. And now, I mean, these were really people who grown up there all of their lives and suddenly they're living in a parking lot. And you can imagine for me, you know, we've moved several times, you know, in our married life, uh, my wife and I, but these people had not necessarily. And then from being free and on the land, they, they move over there. So some of the findings that they learned that, that the project kind of went through is, hey, what happens to people when, when these kind of disasters happen? And then, you know, and I can't speak deeply about that. I was mostly, you know, in a listening room, wow, that, that's interesting. And when, we, when I visited one of these, these relocation camps, I was in the community center kind of with these people. And I, they, they gather everybody together and they just go through these exercise sessions. So we did it. They were mm -hmm. like, you're here, you're going to exercise. <laughs> And so we exercised and we saw the, the healthcare efforts there. And then we talked to some of the people who had, who had been displaced and, and just, you know, psychologically, the impact was incredible. Um, I, it's hard to really, I mean, they, they were resilient, mm -hmm. you know, and so talking to them, they weren't bitter. Mm -hmm. They weren't, you know, saying, you know, the devils who do, did this to us but the light was somewhat out right the you know it was hard it was very very hard and 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 so you know if we switch to the scientific learning 
that we did, I think we learned that that recovery is possible. Um, that 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 remediation has to take all kinds of parts from, as you talked about, from the forest to the to the water, um, to the water balance, to to the agricultural soils, to the homes, and all this kind of stuff. Um, we also, you know, we also learned that that it's really difficult to to work with soil outside its native condition, and and that that we don't really have a great process for remediation. Even in another situation where there wasn't much clay, let's see here, uh, where we live in the Pacific Northwest, we've got a lot of silt loam. There is some clay in the soil, I, but I'm not sure whether we could even use this remediation process because A, I'm not sure it would be bound on the cesium, and B, possibly even worse, it's really hilly here, mm -hmm. right? So, so these disasters, you know, when we don't, it, when they're not anticipated, when we don't have a great plan, or even if we do have a great plan and, and just the situation doesn't work, it creates difficulty. Yeah, yeah. So what what is the current state of the project? And and along with that, what are kind of the, the, the next steps or what does the future have in store for it? You know, one of the cool things I think about the project is, is they're just pacing it, hmm. right? And and so the last time I went there before the, the pandemic, we were putting up a lot of really beautiful greenhouses. The initial greenhouses were, were, were a little bit, you know, a little bit built a little bit fast. Maybe you know they, mm -hmm. they weren't as as tight as you'd kind of expect to see a greenhouse. There were hoop houses, and they were put up probably by people who didn't know a lot about how to do hoop houses. The last time I went there, and and some of that's on meters video, the Fukushima video. Uh, they were gorgeous. I mean, this <laughs> the rows were tight. The they were bigger hoop houses. There was a lot more room and, and the environmental controls were really good. And so I think it's it's really focusing on what these people can do to make a living. And, and I think that's just growing step by step. So we're getting more fields that, that we've figured out how to at least get a little fertility back. We're growing rice and, and we're producing. I think the future holds trying to increase the capacity of, of, of peop the people of Fukushima to be able to produce like they did before. With the end goal being a return to quote unquote normalcy, which wouldn't be for, for Kubusan. He grew flowers, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's in his, you know, mid to late seventies now. And he's, you know, he's like, I'm happy here. I am growing flowers. And that is recovery for mm -hmm. Kubusan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's just fine. Um, for Maneo's son, he wants to grow lot, you know, lots of plants. He's also, you know, he's in his early 70s, so he's not young either. Um, he's full of life and he's growing in lots of greenhouses. And that's what recovery looks mm -hmm. like to this people. And I think that the goals of the NGO, the non-government organization that's that's running this effort is just to make sure that they can, they, I mean, their success is returning to as much of normal as possible. Yeah. And I think that this, I mean, I don't know if, if something along these lines has happened, uh, you know, a project along these lines has happened, you know, at Chernobyl or like a three mile island. But this this seems like a, a really unique um, longitudinal study to, to really yeah. see how ecologically, environmentally, sociologically as well. How does a location um, recover from from a yeah a disaster of, of this nature? So. I, I you mentioned you say unique, and I think you know what I know of Chernobyl and and other disasters really is unique, and I think it's a it's a 
testament to the Japanese people um, because this could have been the same. You know, when we went in the first time, it, it looked like the pictures of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. uh, it could have been the same. But the people, the will of the people would not let that happen. Cared enough about the people who had been displaced to, to make sure that it didn't happen. And, and that's, I mean, if there's, there's a host of, of inspiring stories that come out of here, but that's one of the beautiful ones, that they simply refuse to let, let that happen. Right. Any final thoughts? Anything else that you'd want to add? Well, the, you know, I think that one of the funniest things about this is how it all came about. If we rewind all the way back to the beginning, I didn't know Mizo. Mm -hmm. Mizo was just some, some guy at the University of Tokyo, a wonderful, respected professor. And in 2001, one of our colleagues that works here at Meter Group um, was working at the, the University of Minnesota as a grad student. I, we went out there as a part of a, a national meeting. And while we were there, I said, hey, Doug, will you just take us out to your research site? I want to see what you're doing because mm -hmm. he and I have been graduate students together at Texas A&M. And so he, he gathered his major professor, uh, Dr. John Baker, and we were going to hop in the minivan and go. And this guy came up, this Japanese guy, and he's like, hey, I want to go too. And I'm like, that's weird. I'm just going to go with my friend. And I know John Baker well, and we were just going to go out there. And, and I'm a little taken aback, but like, okay, um, yeah, come on. So, so we all hopped in this car. And I can remember going to this diner, this traditional kind of American greasy spoon diner. Mm -hmm. And we all ordered burgers and we're sitting there and I'm talking to this Japanese professor and his good friend. Um, and, and I said, hey, do you, know, um, do you know one of my friends from graduate school, Kazuki? And he said, um, no. <laughs> and I said, are, are you a soil physicist? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm a soil physicist. I'm like... Kazuki and I are soil physicists too, and I'm absolutely sure that that's not a big community in Japan. You must know Kazuki. And he said, Kazuki? And I, and I said, Kazuki Noborio. Yeah, you know him. And he's like, mm, I don't know Kazuki. And, and I'm like, there's just no way. And he's like, okay, fine, just write it down. So I wrote down Kazuki Noborio. And he, I gave him the paper and he said, Oh, oh, you mean Kosuke. Kosuke. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that weird kind of interaction experience, we, we somehow got to be great friends. And then just later that year, I went over and visited Mizo, an amazing guy. I can now see why he jumped into that trip. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, why, why mm -hmm. do you want to? Because he just loves to learn, loves to experience. And he did know Kosuke. And, and then it launched this friendship for, you know, over 20 years now that Mizo and I have been collaborating on all kinds of fun stuff. And I asked, as a side, I asked Kosuke later, I'm like, why did we call you Kazuki all these years if, if, if your name was Kosuke? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I went to Texas, you know, we were at Texas A&M and I, I met Dr. Murray Milford, good old Texan, he said, Hello, Kazuki. And I just said, <laughs> just I thought said. that's how they said it in Texas. So I was Kazuki. And, and I'm like, it would have been helpful to know you were actually Kosuke because mm -hmm. we didn't know. So that was one of the fun story, I guess, you know, as we, you know, on the podcast talking about things of science, these random meetings, you know, and associations, 
actually mean a ton. And so as you're going out and having these associations and looking for opportunities to collaborate, we can do great things. And this great thing, this thing that I value so much as a part of my career came out of a chance meeting of driving out to a field and eating at a diner that that was forced. Like initially, I was like, "What the heck? Why are you coming with us?" And 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 I'm so glad he did. Right? Yeah. I think that's it. Anything else? No. Nope. You good? All right. Our time is up today. Thank you again, Dr. Colin Campbell, for taking time to share your research with us. My pleasure. It's been fun. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on We Measure the World.